from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast It started with a statement that was made on a television news debate BJP's national spokesperson Nupur Sharma's objectionable comment against Prophet Muhammad first sparked protests in India, some of which turned violent. The spokesperson, who said she had received death threats from India and abroad, had claimed she had the support of her party. A little over a week later, multiple Islamic nations raised objections to the statements. Qatar, United Arab Emirates and Iran were among the first to summon Indian diplomats to register their objections. The BJP responded immediately. The BJP has suspended Nupur Sharma from party's primary membership days after there was controversy over her Soon after, Nupur Sharma issued a statement apologizing to those who may have been offended by her statement. Another BJP spokesperson, Navin Jindal, who had shared her comments, found himself removed from the party. India responded to the objections by the various nations saying that the statements were not made by the government but by fringe elements. It also said strong action had been taken against those who made the statements. When the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, a block of Islamic nations, said the statement was part of growing hate in the country, India responded that the comments made by the OIC were misleading and mischievous. To understand the fallout of this incident and to decode India's responses, we spoke with Talmiz Ahmed, who has been India's ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates. He explains why the Islamic nations reacted this strongly to a statement that was made by a party spokesperson. He also explains why India should heed what some of these nations are saying and how it could affect India and Indians in the long term. Was the reaction of the Middle Eastern nations and the OIC a surprise given the statements came from a BJP spokesperson and not the government? We have to go back a little bit and see the context. The remarks were made about 10 days ago and very little happened immediately. Basically, it was driven by social media. People had heard these remarks and they circulated them on social media this social media activity entered the Gulf, possibly through Indian nationals over there, and finally came to the attention of the religious uh, community there as well as the political leadership. So there was a certain social media-related process in the matter. Now, the problem is that this, uh, these remarks directly pertain to the Holy Prophet and his family. Uh, as you know, there has been a communal discourse that has been now normalized in the country. Uh, but here, up to now, Gulf countries have shied away from making any statements. This is in line with their traditional approach of not making comments on the internal matters relating to other countries. So just because they happen to have Muslim populations doesn't mean that they are driven globally by Muslim-related issues. They are like normal countries and pursue their national interest. For example, never made any adverse remarks about the Chechen uh, agitations in Russia or the Uyghur issue in China. The reference to the Holy Prophet changes everything. It is no longer a domestic issue. It becomes a matter of global concern for the Muslim community in general. 
and it crosses a red line. I would say most of these folks, so-called spokespersons are extremely ignorant of history, of faith, of, uh, of the history of our own country and uh, the various issues. They are ranting and raving to get two minutes of fame. Uh, and that is a pattern that has happened. So they thought they have immunity and that they can get away with it. If you left to themselves, the Gulf countries would have preferred to remain silent. And if they had something to say, they would have conveyed it privately through diplomatic channels. But matters relating to the Holy Prophet are qualitatively different. They are an assault on the Muslim community in general, and they feed into concerns relating to Islamophobia. This is what changes everything. And these are this is why you have this storm of protest that has emerged all around us. There have also been sort of informal protests in some of these nations where we've heard reports of Indian goods being boycotted, things in India being manufactured. How deep do you see this running in terms of protest on the ground in other nations over this? We are at the very early stage. We have not been in this situation before. Up to now, it was easy for governments to control information flows and direct uh, mainstream media not to address something or to address it in a certain way. Social media doesn't admit of this kind of easy control. And that is how it spread. It spread through social media. And once it entered the lives of citizens of the Gulf, they agitated this issue with the, their religious leadership as well as the political leadership and made it impossible for local authorities to ignore what had taken place. Now, I would not get too concerned about the boycott of Indian goods. This has been going on for some time. My, my personal view is that there is a Pakistani hand behind this. It has no, no credibility whatsoever. Our trade ties are burgeoning. Uh, you know, we buy their oil and their uh, petroleum products. We sell to them foodstuffs, textiles and jewellery. None of this is likely to be affected and indeed has not been affected. Boycott Indian goods is a, is a complete non-starter. But having said this, we, it, we should not foolishly believe that there will be no impact on our relationship. What was just below the surface has now entered the consciousness of the people. That the kind of India all of these countries have known and celebrated and the Indians who, whose presence they have cherished, Suddenly, they are conscious of the fact that that India is under challenge. It is under threat. And that there would be consequences in this regard in terms of their view of the country and the relationship that they would uh, uh, encourage as far as their leaders are concerned. It will take time. When you say that um, there is a certain idea of India that exists, uh, what is that idea of India that exists outside? You see, very few of us have uh, been conscious of this. But if you live in these regions, developing countries have idealized India. Because India represented their aspiration, their ultimate aspiration. An idea of India that was pluralistic, accommodative, moderate, and pursuing economic achievement, welfare of its people, within a democratic framework. And all countries that had emerged 
from colonialism and imperialism were very anxious to model themselves on this, not always successfully, but there was always an idea that at the end of the day, there was India. Such a large country, more than a billion people, uh, very diverse people, diverse religions, diverse languages, but a resilient constitution, the strong institutions of governance and democratic order. Uh, it was something, even authoritarian regime. When we used to interact with the regions of the Gulf, they celebrated this idea of India. They may not have had it themselves, and uh, uh, they may not even have thought it for them, but they thought their own ethos is different. But the fact that India had this order and had such large communities, Muslim and Christian, Sikh, uh, etc., accommodated them, gave them positions of safety and privilege. All of these were admired and appreciated. For example, when we had ugly episodes like the destruction of Babri Masjid and the communal riots that followed, or the communal riots that followed the post-Godra episode, when we used to go and meet leaders, they would reassure us. They say, we know that India is committed to certain values and that all communities are safe in India. This we view as an aberration. And we know you will take corrective measures. Also, do recall, many of these leaders, as well as business persons and many other professionals, they were very frequent visitors to India. We may take it for granted and not attach too much value, but people of southern India, particularly from Kerala, are very deeply conscious of this relationship. They know of the interaction of their ancestors with these people. People have every reason to be concerned that, look, the kind of India that has uh, uh, been celebrated in the region is today being questioned by certain ignorant zealots located far away with no knowledge of the region, no interest in getting any uh, further knowledge of the region. It jeopardizes people's standing and possibly even their employment. Does it change how India's ties are with these nations? Because if the idea of India in their eyes has changed, does it then mean that it also changes how they react to Indian companies? I think this will take time. You see, what I would say is that this is uh, the first alarm bell. You see, we have got inured to this communal discourse. We have been concerned, we have been alarmed, we have been dissatisfied, we have been anguished. But by and large, the international community has let us be. And it has encouraged people at home to say that, look, we can get on with impunity. This is a reality check. And it is, I believe, the first alarm bell. Which way things will go, they cannot be predicted at this stage. This kind of discourse, where you build an entire political platform on the basis of maligning another community, a community that is an integral part of your nation, and then you tear apart the tapestry of your order, on the basis of this abuse and violence, it cannot be sustainable. In that context, then, do you see the dismissal of one BJP spokesperson who made the statement and another being suspended? Does it sort of bring the curtains down on this issue? Certainly not. There is no question of any curtains coming down. This is a concern about the entire approach that our leadership has adopted with regard to the political system. A climate was created, a discourse was sustained and maintained 
and they function with immunity. And have you seen it not didn't bring a big up start in May? It has been going on for several years. A climate has been created that you can get away with abuse and violence against one specific community and occasionally the Christian community as well. You can get away with it because it is sanctioned. What is required today is a word that I used separately, enough. Enough. You've had a certain pattern of immunity that you have enjoyed. That era has gone. You must take a fresh look at your whole approach to the political order. I'm not denying you your right to have a certain view of India and a certain ideology. But why does it have to be anchored in the sustained and systematic abuse of another community? I would say that because you are not confident about the positive features of your ideological order, that you need this kind of uh, hatred and violence overturning an, an order that has been integral to our nation for nearly 1,500 years. It is not something that was invented day before yesterday. It is an integral part of our order. This communalizing of the entire political discourse of India and the social and cultural fabric of India is not uh, founded on any understanding of India's history uh, as society and culture. With the reactions of these nations, there's been a marked difference in how India has responded to them. Um, with the UAE, while the response was immediately that, look, we've kind of taken action in this case. Whereas with OIC, we've responded that the comments itself are unwarranted. Um, we, we've seen something similar with even the US report that the comments sort of vary widely from almost apologetic to almost saying that you can't be telling us what to do. How do we decide who we tell what in a sense? <laughs> I, I would say to you very honestly, the system is floundering. It doesn't know how to handle this. It is part of the pattern of immunity that you enjoyed up to now. That anybody said something, you would give a sharp response and say, we are the great people, we are a great nation. We don't need anyone to tell us anything. We were so flush with our own hubris. These are our friends. I can imagine you can be dismissive of Pakistan or uh, OIC, but not your friend. The friends wish you well. It's a friendship, not that just emotional. It is mutually advantageous. These countries of the Gulf are home to eight and a half million people. With regard to OIC, I believe very correctly. This organization, in terms of its engagement with India, has been largely propelled by Pakistan. So we have very rightly dismissed the OIC. So I think with OIC from 1990, we've had a very negative relationship. That though it is a conclave that brings together large numbers of Muslim countries, as far as India is concerned, its agenda is pushed by Pakistan. So I think we have taken the correct. When the United States is concerned, I think there was a degree of uh, of complacency that you know that we are uh, you have got all these organizations. You know, we all know how U.S. functions. But my approach would have been address the issue. Don't look at where that issue came from. The remarks that were made in India. Oh, we know there are lobbies that are encouraging these kind of statements. Everybody has lobbies. 
which democratic system doesn't have lobby. We have lobbies in our country pushing a certain agenda. My approach would have been as a former diplomat, address those. Are they valid? Are they baseless? Are they without foundation? Is there something we can do about it? And then the answer was, we don't need anyone to tell us anything. We are a great civilization. Yes, you are a great civilization. But there are concerns about certain aspects of your present-day political order. But the way I would respond, and I have responded when I was in service, when I respond, I address the issues rather than dismiss the institution or where it came from. With regard to abuses in Jammu and Kashmir, we said there have been aberrations. We have taken harsh action against those. But do also recall the context. There is an externally sponsored assault upon India's fabric. So this is a way in which I thought, uh, and I was supported by the government at that time. Yes, but even great civilizations have had abuses and aberrations. Address those in a calm manner and see that, look, we are also not thrilled about it. Also, I think that that is a more effective way rather than the kind of arrogant approach that we'd have nothing to learn from anybody. Also, if I may say with deep respect, to use the term fringe elements, you are insulting the intelligence of your interlocutors. You think that they are blind, deaf and dumb. They have not seen what has been happening in the country for so long. It is mainstream. It is not fringe. These are little people who picked up the lead from those much earlier before them, stalwarts of the party, stalwarts of the movement uh, to which they belong. So, so to say fringe is not convincing to your friends. And it's a very weak way of defending uh, what has happened. How does India stand to lose from this incident? And how do you see this playing out from here on? Any Indian has to look at this matter at two levels. First is what is happening at home. And secondly, what are the implications for our international interests? For me, my primary concern as an Indian is to be anguished and agitated about the trend in support of the communal agenda. There's a crude term that is used very often by commentators, soft power. Even though I'm uneasy with this term, the fact is that this concept embraces the stature of the nation and the view of the nation among common people globally, not the leadership, the common people globally. So there is a certain impact right there. There is, and all of these people have a very positive view of India. Some of them we very deeply concerned about the way things are going. Now it comes to the foreign interests and foreign policy interests. This will take a time. Uh, if we, certain apparent corrective measures are taken, then maybe uh, there will be a, a, a kind of reworking of the approach. We are the number one expatriate community in every country of the country. This is an expression of extraordinary trust and faith in the Indians. Why did it happen? It happened because we are aloof from domestic politics in this region. We are seen as a very disciplined community. We are also seen as a technically qualified community. 
as a result of this extraordinary trust in the Indian, there is a shift in favor of India. The first shift occurred in the 70s, when Arabs used to dominate the workforce. And there were concerns about the politics that they were bringing into these relatively uh, nascent emerging countries of the Gulf. First shift away was from the Arabs in favor of Pakistanis. But in the 1980s, there was a shift away from Pakistanis for two reasons. Number one, there were concerns that large numbers of Pakistanis are affiliated with extremist politics. The same extremist politics that led to the global jihad in Afghanistan and had a very robust Pakistani presence in that was a matter of concern that even though they might support the global jihad in Afghanistan, the last thing they wanted to see was jihadis in their own country. It is at that time that the shift in favor of India occurred. And that pattern has continued. From 1990 to 2020, 30 years. So our community from 3 million went to 6 million, went to 7 million, 8 million, 8.5 million. This community dominates the employment landscape as tycoons, small business, professionals, technicians, and blue-collar workers. In every category, we have made a remarkable contribution. Why has this happened? I remind you, it is due to our being apolitical, disciplined, and technically qualified. What, suppose you are an employer today. You would wonder, should I really recruit this Zell? What if he undermines my the, the unity of my workforce, the integrity of my company with his poison on social media and other things? The last thing these countries need is discord within their political order. For example, Dubai. Dubai has 150 nationalities living together in a small space. They have a, a system where to the extent you behave yourself well in public, you have a place in the political order and in the social order, economic order. What if there are doubts about Indians? Slowly but surely, creeping like a poison. Very slowly, certain individuals may start shifting away from Indians as they shifted away from Arabs earlier and from Pakistanis more recently. We are a preferred community, a cherished community, a community that is deeply trusted. This relationship has nothing to do with faith. It has to do with the high level of mutual comfort, the shared ethos that we have. Communalizing this ethos and the shared comfort, and the activities of zealots who have the temerity to abuse the Holy Prophet, I think is a sure way of creating first concerns regarding the efficacy of continuing to favor Indians over others. There will be people who are uncomfortable with this uh, attitude of Indian extremists, and they are likely to exercise a degree of pressure on the political leadership either directly or through the religious leaders that they have. At some stage, the political leaders may find it very difficult to withstand these kinds of pressures.
I have answered at length because I believe this is something that we should be very deeply concerned about for political reasons, economic reasons, and above all, in terms of our strategic interests. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe, and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas, and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.